What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's guest is Max Altschuler. Max is someone that I've known for a very long time, and he was actually my co-founder at CMX. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, He only ended up working with me for about a year. That was because he also ran another community called Sales Hacker that he started that grew a whole lot and decided to turn his full-time focus over to that when I continued to run with CMX. But Max is someone who I turn to for advice constantly. He understands community and he understands the world of sales in a deeper way than anyone else I know. Certainly, there's no one else in the world that I think understands both of those topics as well as he does. And so this is going to be a little bit of a unique conversation in that we're not just going to be talking about community engagement, which we do talk about that, but we also talk about the relationship between community and sales. And really, it's helpful to hear from him the the way he talks about the value of community to a sales team and why community is so important to a business. He's also just one of the most pragmatic thinkers I know. Uh, he's very direct, will not beat around the bush. You know, whenever I'm struggling with a decision, he's someone I go to because I know he's going to give it to me straight and he'll think very pragmatically about how to make that decision. And you'll hear a lot of that kind of advice for community builders and community professionals in this episode. All right. Hope you guys love it. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Max. You and I have been, we, we've had probably hundreds of conversations over the course of, of our friendship over what, how long have we known each other? Oh, I don't know. How long is it? Eight years? Yeah, 2011, nine years, I think. Well, nine years. I think this is the first time that we'll have a recorded conversation. Is that true? I mean, I don't know. I asked the CIA or the FBI or... (laughs) First time it's recorded by us. Intentionally. That's exactly. JK. That's right. Hello. There's some CIA agents who are sales and community experts now because they've just been listening in this whole time. Totally, totally. I think when we met. When I was at Zarly. Wow. Yeah, that would be 2011. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, I'm excited to chat uh, on a recorded call because I feel like we've we've had so many good conversations about community and sales and the intersection of the two and startups. And I, I've learned a ton from working with you um, and, and just talking to you. You're one of the people I go to first when I need advice on a lot of this stuff. So... I'm just I'm excited to to be able to record one of these and and share the wisdom with others. Yeah, excited to dive into it. Word. Let's start off with just hearing a little bit about your story. You're the founder of uh, Sales Hacker. Sales Hacker was acquired by Outreach, uh, where you head up marketing now. But you've been in the startup game for a really long time. I th- I think actually when we first met, you were at Udemy, working on sales there. So yeah, can you tell talk a little bit about your background and just how you started Sales Hacker in the first place? I was the first sales hire, second business hire at Udemy uh, back in 2011. Was it Udemy or Udemy? Udemy. The Academy of You, Udemy. I said it wrong when I first started for like a couple weeks. I was calling it Udemy. Uh, Hmm. So, yeah, it it was a learning curve, but just pronouncing the name. Anyway, joined joined them in San Francisco, moved to San Francisco, didn't know anybody, never had a start in tech, didn't know anybody in tech, didn't know anybody in San Francisco. Just knew that I was going to put, you know, 
into it, work my ass off and, and make something of the opportunity that I got. So I'll go back even a little bit further. I was, I started a business strictly to make American money while living abroad and took it to Costa Rica and Nicaragua for a couple months. And we were doing basic arbitrage. Uh, we were creating websites and running people's social media and we were outsourcing a lot of it to Pakistan, Bangladesh, Philippines, um, using Fiverr and and at the time it was Odesk and Elance, now it's Upwork. And that was fun. But we got to a point where we we're like, okay, we're too ambitious for this. We need to go figure out what we're gonna do long term. And I remember one of our customers said, you know, how are you guys, you know, doing the work? And we were learning how to program. We were trying to teach ourselves how to do some of this work so we can do it ourselves instead of, you know, outsourcing it and so we can be better at at speaking the language to um, to like product manage in a lot of these ways. And we were, and, and they said, um, we were using Linda, um, which was before the LinkedIn acquisition. And they said, have you heard mm-hmm. of Udemy? So I looked it up and I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is like democratizing education. This is Amazon for, um, you know, the education space, which is a $2 trillion market. And, you know, as somebody who didn't get a ton out of traditional education like i can go and learn skills that i can go put to use to make money with right now this is great so i actually had my first call with uh udemy from nicaragua from a um pretty much like a payphone. you know those little like places that you go into and they have mm-hmm. desktop computers and phone booths and you go in and you give them a couple pesos and then you can like use the phone for a little while so i spoke to them from there flew up to san francisco didn't have the job yet did seven hours worth of interviews over two days and then didn't hear from them for a week, which was a very stressful week. I was, you know, still applying to other companies, but I really wanted this this job at Udemy. Got it, you know, kind of in my don't take no for an answer style. And then uh, and then went and uh, took over building the sales side or the supply side of their marketplace. You know, at the time, there's there's a lot of growth hacking you could do to get users to sign up. But not a lot of people were taking that to the other side. What, what kind of things can you do to do to generate more revenue using less resources, to sell more with less? And we didn't have a lot of resources. We raised a million dollar seed round, and um, you know our competitors were well more advanced than we were. So we needed to get real scrappy. So I um, kind of uh, you know did some hacky stuff. I hired uh, our uh, virtual assistants in the Philippines who were used to doing admin work, and I trained them to be sales development reps. Um, we went out. We used the uh, the first ever sales engagement tool. Um, it was really more of a kind of mail merge tool, but it was something called ToutApp, and uh, mm-hmm. no longer exists today. They got acquired by Marketo a while ago, and then uh, we were using Python and like Phantom JS to scrape websites. And build leads, lead lists of people we can go reach out to to teach courses, people who are best-selling authors. And it worked. And VCs and other founders would go to our founders and ask you know, how we were growing so fast. And they would point people in my direction. I'd have conversations with these other companies. And then I found, found that this was something that people really cared about. You know, I, I struck a chord. People needed to figure this out. And you know, I, I started writing about it. Writing became um, a four-person meetup where we'd meet monthly to geek out on this type of stuff that turned into eight people that turned into 20 people 20 people turned into a conference and uh we had a, our first conference in san francisco at uh the broadway uh i was called like broadway theater or something like that and yeah it was a, a cheap space to do an event but it took me four weeks to organize something like that for something between like yeah, yeah four weeks or something like that and i made like 60 grand in profit on it 
And I was like, wow, this, this is a business. Like this is more than I was making as a salaried employee, you know, my previous company. And I did that in four weeks. So like, well, there's clearly a demand here. So uh, it actually leads uh, me to when I met, I really not met you, but like it was two years after we met, you were working on Feast. Right. And that's when we started CMX was after I threw that first conference. That's right. You, I, I think I had told you the idea for a conference focused on community uh, in the past. And then after you ran your first conference, you came back to me and you said, I know how to run a conference now. I'll handle all the operations and you just handle, you know, ticket sales and speaker curation, um, which, you know, the operational side of running a conference was what scared me from doing it. And so, yeah, we, we kicked that off together and we put that first event together. What was it like five weeks? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember we met, so I threw my conference, I started organizing my conference like early September. The conference date was sometime mid October. We met up at Dreamforce, which I think was early November or late October that year in the Marriott in the lounge. I remember it. I remember that vividly. I remember shaking hands and confirming that we were going to do this. And I walked out like, holy shit, how the hell are we going to do this? You were working on Feast. You got backed by 500 startups with the amazing Nadia. You guys, I thought you were doing a fantastic job with Feast, but you know, I remember you saying, like, I love what I'm doing, but I'm not going to be able to pay rent in February. Like, I got to figure it out. <laughs> Feast was not working. <laughs> Feast was fun. And it was cool. I remember actually, I, I remember being a customer of Feast. Uh, we did like a focus group thing where you guys, That's right. we FaceTimed while I made a, I think it was like pork <laughs> in like a salt wrap or something like that. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. We had you test out one of our recipes. Yes. Yeah. I actually <laughs> think I had like Holly McNamara be my like sous chef for it. That's right. Wow. And yeah, so... We, we talked and I pretty bluntly was like, let's just do this conference. You've got a great network, obviously a love for a community. Like that's what you should be doing. We can, we can make money on this thing. You'll pay your rent in February and beyond and mm -hmm. let's see where it goes from there. Like it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be like a long-term thing. So, you know, you had the idea for it. You had the, you know, I think you were doing the blog or, you know, writing about it already similarly to how I was. Um, and we ended up doing, you know, the first ever CMX event back in uh, Dog Patch Studios, I think it was. And uh, we had a couple hundred people there, you know, like two, two fifty, maybe three hundred. I don't remember what we about three hundred, yeah, that first one, something like that. And that was great. You saw like the energy and the passion um, from the from the community managers who were there, um, and, and like you, you yourself as a natural uh, leading that that charge. Don't so. stop. So that was good. That that was a good first event. Then we did uh, New York, which wasn't as successful. <laughs> learned, learned a couple things. We won't have. To... I tell a story about New York. Yeah, sometimes I was, I was gonna say uh, we won't go into that one here, but um... <laughs> let's just say we almost CMX almost ended right there, <laughs> and it took some uh, massive efforts in the last minute to move things around to make sure we could still run a successful, profitable event and live to host another one but you know what you, you, you got to give us credit not to float our own boat but like i do remember we made we made everything right with the vendors like every vendor got paid 
um, even the vendors we didn't end up using because we we pivoted at the last minute. Yeah, we could talk about it. Like we we changed the venue last minute, right? Because we we came out of San Francisco feeling real real cocky, real confident about like how we can grow it. Turned out New York was a different market, and we we kind of struggled to sell the amount of tickets we projected and fill up the space that we had committed to. And then we ended up having to pull out of the contract last minute with that venue to move to a smaller venue, uh, still paid the fees on the contract for having to cancel, still paid everybody. I, I, you know, I attribute this to your savvy, just like looking at it and saying, we can actually spend a lot less money by paying all these fees and switching to this venue than if we stick with this venue. And then we have a space that's too big for the audience, which it'll feel empty and just be a worse experience for the community. Yeah. I mean, we took it from a point of like probably losing decent amount of money to making a little bit of money on the event and also really smoothing things over with everybody that needed to be smoothed over. So I thought we navigated it pretty well. I thought, you know, I I thought, and that's why I say like not to blow smoke, but like credit to us. We, we did the right thing in that situation. We, we could have stiffed a bunch of people made a little bit money more made a little bit more money on that event I remember and we didn't we we paid we paid more than we had to in order to just try to do right by everybody exactly so I remember that and then I remember you know we went back to San Francisco where it was we're you know back home where it was successful again and then I think those were the three that we we did together before it was like okay you've got this I gotta go do sales hacker and you know at that point I think I was picking up Saster um, which I did for two years, the Saster Annual with Jason Lemkin, which I learned you know, a lot. Right. So yeah, so we, we worked on CMX together for a year. S- Sales Hacker just was also growing at the same time, and it was growing really fast. You you essentially had to spend f- your full-time effort on that, and so you, you switched your full-time focus there. Um, I carried on with CMX. Um, but Sales Hacker went on to be you know, a wildly successful community, Grew to tens of thousands of people in the network. Uh, you you had events running. You've published lots of content, and ultimately you were acquired by Outreach. Would love to just really quickly hear like what was that growth story like? Like what did you do to take Sales Hacker from that first event that you did to how many members do you have today? Uh, about one hundred seventy thousand. One hundred seventy thousand. Wild. So what what were and and like. I want to understand as well, because one thing I'll say about you from having worked with you and knowing you for a long time is you have a very methodical way of thinking about things, very practical. And I mean, you know, you wrote the book Sales Hacking, you wrote the book Career Hacking, like you have a, a, a an ability to figure out how to make systems really optimized. And, you know, whether you call that hacking or... Um, whatever it is, you do a lot with a little. So I would love to kind of hear how you were able to apply that mentality to building your community. Yeah, I always like the expression: it's not the lack of resources; it's the lack of resourcefulness. You know, because then you can then you you basically have extreme ownership or extreme accountability over every situation, and you can never mm-hmm. use a failure as a way to as an excuse you always learn from failure because it's always your fault you always take that accountability that doesn't mean you need to get down on yourself but like you at least you know like you waste failure if you don't learn from it so you know it's about having that growth mindset it's about having that kind of like ability to look inward or or you know have that like reflection period um and that's what helps you know helps all these things grow that's what helps you become a 
you know, hack every area of your life or create kind of like some, some framework around something so that you have like a repeatable process that you know is going to work in the future. But going back into, into sales hacker. Um, so we, we had that conversation, we did CMX and I was still doing sales hacker at the time. We went to New York with our event. We had a lot more success in New York. Um, then I think CMX did going over there. I think that, that event took us six weeks to organize and we made like 50 grand on it. That's when we knew we really had something. Um, we also published the, the, the blog at the time. It used to be, uh, it started out as maxtalkshacks.com, which was my first domain for all my hacks. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Yeah, exactly. And then it graduated to saleshacker.com. And so we started doing the publication and then we essentially turned it into um, meetups in 32 different cities. Mm-hmm. We were doing meetups in 20 different cities in the U.S., then we had UK uh, covered. We had a Dublin meetup. We had um, somebody had one in Poland. Somebody had one in Germany, um, Singapore, Australia had them. It was um, it kind of just like it, it took off like wildfire. And we those were all volunteer led. Exactly, they were all volunteer led. I'm thinking of some of like the locations we had, but it was all volunteer led, and we thought this was awesome. You know, it was one of those things like, oh, we're going to get a lot of subscribers from it. It's going to get the word out there. And it did, but like the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. Like we charged for these events. If you went to one of those events and then you were going to come to like one of our bigger conferences, you might have not or you might have not sponsored one of the conferences because like maybe those events weren't organized as well as we would have liked because it was too much out of our control. And then also taxes. So you don't realize – when you're, you know, a little entrepreneur just starting out, is like you got to pay taxes in every state you do an event in. So if I did like an Atlanta meetup, if you're earning income on it, yeah, exactly. Like I got to pay taxes in those areas. At the end of the day, your money's getting cut in half or more or whatever it is. It's not really worth it. So it wasn't worth the effort. We wound those down and we fig, you know, we we kind of sat down and we're like, what does the future of this business look like? And we actually we, – we weren't really loving the events business because it's a commodity. I mean if – like I'm at Outreach now and if we competed you know, with Sales Hacker and Outreach for, for conferences, you know, people love the Sales Hacker brand. But like I have to make money off all my events. Outreach can, can use their event as a loss leader. So they could lose a million dollars on their conference and I have to make money on mine, which means like they could provide sushi for lunch and have a after party on an aircraft carrier with Nelly and Beyonce, you know, and their keynote speaker can be, you know, Obama or, you know, LeBron James, you name it. I can't afford any of that kind of stuff. So like whose event are people going to start going to? Like at a certain point, there's only so much more like content I can like better content I can do. Right. So I, I kind of saw the, the writing on the wall and we went online to where our strength was which was our digital audience and we started doing webinars we turned almost all of our revenue into um from in-persons to to a digital and it was so much more predictable it wasn't you know oh i don't know what i'm going to get at this event it was you know way less stressful and i was able to hire more smoothly we hired um you know our first like really big time hire which to me was an expensive hire and gaetano denardi and he did seo for us and and completely flipped the switch on on our digital business because we were able to to grow our base from you know twenty thousand subscribers after we shut down the meetups to like eighty thousand subscribers in 
you know, a year and a half or something like that. So this is a really good example where (laughs) I feel like you and I often have kind of a different approach to things, Um, not better or worse, but very different. Um, Like the first things that come to mind for me when you talk about that is like, well, sure, virtual webinars and events, those are going to be more scalable, but you lose out on the actual, the interaction and, and the community value that you get from bringing people together. Yeah. I mean, so so when we did digital, we still had one big event a year. Um, the bringing people together thing is, you know, is definitely something that we thought about. We had a LinkedIn group that was really awesome. We can mm-hmm. get into this later about like where you should build communities because the LinkedIn group was great. And then they stripped all functionality out of LinkedIn and left it left us too dependent on that platform. We had 13,000 people in our LinkedIn group that eventually, that like, yeah. you know, we couldn't moderate or control anymore. So, um, but, but I agree. And it also, it really depends on who your end user is. So, you know, for us, our, our base is always going to be bigger than yours because there are more salespeople in the world than there are community managers probably. I mean, like, look at, look at every company. Totally. Today, that's a hundred percent true. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've like, just take anybody out of our database, look at their company and ask them how many community managers do you have and how many salespeople do you have? And I guarantee there's going to be an exponential difference. So mm-hmm. our base will be bigger. The The audience is, you know, how they like to interact is also different. And I'm not saying like salespeople are super extroverted. So like they like to meet in person. But if you were doing a community for, you know, ops people, maybe online's better. Like maybe they don't really want as much of like the in-person type stuff. Like I'm mm-hmm. you're seeing in the coronavirus times that like people are like, Hey, I kind of like this. Well, that's the interesting thing. Everyone's doing virtual events. Now, um, you, you moved to virtual a long time ago, um, more so because you saw the efficiency in it and, and it spoke more to your competitive advantage. Um, but now everyone's trying to figure out virtual events and they have no option since COVID-19. Yeah. Well, we'll get into virtual events, you know, in a little bit, I'm sure, because we just, you know, pivoted our in-person event to virtual. There's some key learnings from that. But yeah, taking a lot of stuff online for us was was good for our business. Also, you know, another thing that I kind of left out was I I had Jason Lemkin from Saster, who was the founder of uh, EchoSign, sold it to Adobe, left there and then started his Saster blog. And basically, it was a bunch of Quora answers to like SaaS questions. Mm-hmm. Um, he spoke at my first conference. We became friendly through that. And then he asked me to help him organize a Saster annual conference. Right. Um, so we organized. So that was actually like a huge thing for me because um, it opened me up to a whole new network. But it also was a big moneymaker. The first event we organized, you know, was a similar type thing. We, it took us a couple more months. We, I think we gave it three months, you know, lead time. But um, we made some good money. Um, you know, over six figures each on on that event. What was the key difference between that and sales hacker? Was it just because Saster had a bigger audience? Yeah, he had a he already had a pre built audience that was pretty big. Yeah. I mean, I like he's probably in his forties or something like that. So think he's think around like he's been around the block a couple times in Silicon Valley where I had you know I was like a twenty six year old. I didn't know anybody. You know, I, if I went to throw a conference in fifteen years, I'm sure it would. I'm sure I can invite a lot of people. Um, I don't know what it would be for, but you know, just call it my right. 40, 48th birthday. And I think that first event you kind of co-branded with Sales Hacker as well. So was that was that something that helped you grow the Sales Hacker community as well? It definitely put us a little bit more on the map um, and it made us look a lot more legit. 
we, we were able to show that we could do a pretty big event and do it pretty well. And it made me go a little bit bigger with sales hackers. So like we, the, the, the two most interesting parts of the journey, I think, um, from an event perspective is landing Saster and doing the Saster annual for the first two years. And, and the first year we did a thousand person conference, um, one day, thousand people. The second year we did a three day, like 5,000 person conference. And that was just like, whoa, why did we need to go that big that fast? Um, mm-hmm. you know, learned a lot of lessons, um, there too on, on scaling an event. The second thing was I, uh, that put me on the map. It also challenged me to go think a little bit bigger. So I created sales stack, which was our fi- first like 1500 person conference that we did on our own with sales hacker. And then that led to getting Salesforce to jump in and do sales machine with us. So we had like the first ever only joint conference with Salesforce. And here it is, like little old me and Salesforce doing a joint conference together. Yeah. Like and we did that two years in a row. And I was working directly with the SVP marketing and the CMO for Salesforce Sales Cloud to do this event. Why did they need to do that with you versus doing it themselves? Did they want to reach your audience? I think they wanted to show some third party thought leadership. You know, something that's not just like Salesforce talking at people, but like Salesforce being a part of the conversation and like showcasing that they're involved, you know, in hyper growth companies and evolution of sales technology. And I yeah. think it did for them exactly what they wanted it to do in it and, you know, all in all it wasn't su- you know, wasn't a super expensive initiative. I think that's a good example of you said before kind of, well, how can you compete with a brand that has lots of money and can get all these famous people to speak and perform and put a lot of money into it? But that that is the fundamental difference. That's why companies wanted to work with Sales Hacker and with CMX. They had their own conferences, but when it's your own brand, it's your own conference, there's not a lot of trust there in terms of, you know, thought leadership. It's like Obviously, you're you're going to throw a conference to promote, you know, your product and to set yourself up to be a thought leader, versus a brand like Sales Hacker. The the power tends to be in its objectivity. Well, and I don't. I remember feeling. I mean, I was like a fish out of water. Also, at this time, like here I am now, emceeing this event on stage with like Patrick Blair, who was like the EVP, you know, at Salesforce, like reported to Mark Benioff directly. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a suit, you know, it's like, I'm a startup sales guy, like, I'm, uh, hoodies and jeans and stuff like that. Now all of a sudden I'm wearing suits and I'm, I'm surrounded by a bunch of other salespeople in suits. That was just never, I don't, you know, I didn't even know how to wear a suit for sales. You, you know, you're supposed to wear a tie. You're not supposed to wear a tie. Like what if I look like I'm going <laughs> to a wedding, you know, I showed up to a bar mitzvah. Like this isn't, you know, this isn't <laughs> tire. This, you're not supposed to wear a tie like that. Oh man, I still look at the pictures from that first CMX summit, and I, I look like a child wearing a suit. <laughs> I look back on some of these things. I was like, man, I was such a kid. Like I was a kid. I was like, you know, it was fake until you make it. Totally. I think that was the first time I wore a suit all that year. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you've worn one. I, I think that was the last time I wore a suit to my conference too. I was like, this is, doesn't feel right. <laughs> it's my first CMX wedding that, and then funeral. There you go. That's David Spink's uh, suit. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of learnings from throwing these conferences. I think like I remember you know, Jason and I went our separate ways after doing the first two Saster annuals. It made sense for both of us and – I met up with him a couple months later and, you know, 
uh, he's just a really smart guy. And I asked him, like, what would he do if he were me? You know, the the event stuff. You know, I saw, like, a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of scaling conferences. And he was just like, just grow. Just, like, just grow. Just grow your database and, like, everything else will come into, in, like, will we'll snap into place. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, you know, it was like... Your database being your email list, I guess? And that's okay. how we were able to charge for digital initiatives. Like, once we had, like, 20,000 subscribers, we were able to charge, like, 5K for a webinar because we got a couple mm-hmm. of people to sign up for webinars. Mm-hmm. And sponsors wanted to get in front of those people. And then next thing you know, we're at 80,000 and we're getting, you know, 1,500 people to come to a webinar. We're right. charging for that. And then right. people are paying for it. And it's, you know, it's predictable, repeatable revenue. So, yeah, I mean, we, we did a... We, we built our community on LinkedIn. Um, we could definitely go into like the key learnings from building, you know, communities and, and platforms and things like that. But digitizing the business was was good for my sanity. So, so just grow. That was the advice from Jason Lemkin, and and you've been able to grow it a lot. What were the things that you've found worked, and and maybe not even necessarily tactics, because I think tactics are you know, going to be different for everybody and it changes constantly. Um, I know like you, you had mentioned to me that SEO is, has been really big for you and, you know, I would want to learn how that's worked with your community, but like, okay, so you get the advice, just grow, you know, what do you do from that point to figure out how to grow your community, how to reach more people, how to grow your events? It's funny when I started sales hack, I had no idea what it was going to be. Like I just, I was having fun. I was making good, better money than I ever made him, you know, before in my life. I was, I was growing an asset. I was building a brand and a network, like transferable assets I could take with me anywhere. You know, I was talking to a lot of different VCs who like wanted my opinion on early stage sales, or you know, was wondering, you know, what I, what I thought, where I thought the market was going to go. Like I was building this thought leadership that was pretty, pretty awesome. And I remember getting this just grow advice, and I was like, yeah, you know. I never knew where I was going to take this. With the just grow advice, it makes it pretty easy to simplify the 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 day to day. It's like just grow, and then as the numbers get bigger, opportunities will open up, and they did. That's when we you know got into the webinars and you know all that kind of stuff. So the the we looked at what we were doing to grow and and where our traffic was coming from. So that's the first thing you do is like if you already have a platform and it's already working, like analyze what is allowing it to grow. Talk to others in the space and understand, like, well, what are they doing to grow? What's, uh, what's you know, the digital marketer or growthhackers.com or any of these other companies doing to grow? And the one thing that we were completely neglecting as a media company, somebody who created content, was SEO. I just, like, never understood it. You know, it's not something they teach in high school or college. Like, it's a completely different, you know, skill set. In a lot of ways, it's completely uh, alien to what I know as a entrepreneur and seller. <clears throat> and I started talking to a bunch of friends in the space and um, Eric Sue actually introduced me to Gaetano Donardi who was at um, Pipe Drive at the time doing SEO for them and they they were killing it on organic um, search. And so Gaetano and I started having conversations and um, he kind of started out as a contractor. I remember he was living in the Bronx and he was deciding between working at Sales Hacker, which you know he could work from home, or working for Time Online, so like Time Magazine Online, and that was like a big brand. And they were going to pay him a little bit more, but he'd have to commute from the Bronx to Battery Park in New York City. I mean, that's like the furthest tip of Manhattan. 
I can't imagine the amount of commuting hours he'd have a day on that commute and how like shitty that would be. So um, this was around the time that like Kevin Durant joined the Golden State Warriors, and I said to him, I was like, "Yeah, you're Durant right now. You can come. You can join the like the Warriors, the best team. You can go to time, and like if time's successful, you're just like another whatever. Like, did you even do anything? But you can come to me, and we're like the underdogs. You can come to Sales Hacker, we're the underdogs, and like when we're successful, you're gonna get all the credit for it. And so he ended up coming to sales hacker which i think was a really good choice because he was with us for a year and a half and i'm pretty sure his salary from when before he started sales hacker to what it is now you know or or a year and a half apart probably three x i shit you not or close to it so i think it worked out pretty well for him and we always had this mantra like i wanted to create the sales hacker mafia like if somebody puts in time to come work at Sales Hacker, you're going to build your 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 network. You're going to, you know, obviously learn a ton. I just want you to have like a better opportunity coming out of Sales Hacker than you had when you were like starting at Sales Hacker. I want you to see us as like a super valuable stepping stone in your career. So, and like that's my way of giving back, like my way of helping. Mm-hmm. So we always we always empowered that. But getting back to Gaetano, so Gaetano came in, he did an audit on everything and uh, understood, you know what we needed to rank for in order to, you know, what were the top keywords, you know, in our space and then went to work and it really took them. I mean, I'll tell you like three to six months, we started seeing like killer results and that just started to compound. And we, we had an outsourced like copywriting team that would do pillar articles for us. So like what is sales development? And it would just be a, like a, research report on sales development like everything you ever needed to know so that when somebody typed in sales development or what is sales development this thing came up first so imagine how much traffic you're going to get if you're if you're the number one thing for like every keyword so that drove a ton of traffic then we had you know we we tested our ctas and our you know created ebooks and things like that to to capture leads most of our content or like our premium content, whether it be webinars or ebooks, even if it costs us money to do, we charge sponsors for them. We made money on on these things. So we had a really right. good we were like our customer was the the vendor that wanted to sell to our audience. And we were not only a way for them to like get through to our audience, but we were also a content creator for them where they like got assets out of working right. with sales hacker. Got it. So, I mean, it sounds like SEO has been kind of the critical thing that took you from 10 to 20K subscribers to over 100,000 subscribers today. Yeah, it took us to 80 and then we did the acquisition and we've, in the first, I think it was like uh, 18 months, we doubled our base. And that's just from the compounding effects of SEO. It's from um, us being able to get, you know, better, better speakers over time. It's from, you know, word of mouth and, you know, working with different speakers and different sponsors, they promote the things and then people come. So what's worked really well for you for promoting your events, finding channels or pockets of influencers or other uh, media companies that will promote it for us, arming our speakers and sponsors with really good promo packets now at Outreach, obviously arming our reps with information and content that they can share um, that mm-hmm. get people in that are you know more targeted. 
what else works really well? Yeah, articles that we put together and then, you know, we SEO. We're built for SEO that are like, you know, top reasons to attend or speaker profiles, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like we do LinkedIn takeovers. So we'll have everybody from outreach, you know, post what their favorite session is going to be and why or something like that. Um, we did 90s photos for our 90s, you know, party. Uh, so that was another, you know, fun one because everybody likes to see what somebody looked like in the 90s. Yeah, just getting, you know, really, really creative with it. And then obviously retargeting, yeah. ad retargeting uh, works well too. And so that all took you ultimately to be acquired by Outreach, which I know from experience having a community acquired. CMX was acquired by Bevy um, about a year and a half ago. Um, so wild experience, right? And, and a lot of questions that come up because kind of as we, we talked about earlier, uh, the objectivity is one of the biggest value points of, of having a third-party community. And, and a lot of your revenue was all coming from partners and, and sales technology. So how did you navigate that decision? I guess, was it like, did the offer just come to you and you considered it or were you actively looking for an acquisition? So I am a salesperson and an entrepreneur, so I'm always selling. I kept two, I kept a, a folder on Google Drive. In that folder were three decks and an Excel spreadsheet, so two different types of assets. The Excel spreadsheet had every company that could potentially acquire us and broken down um, into the categories that those companies were in. So, you know, research and advisory firms, consulting and training organizations, and SaaS vendors. And then it had the person at those companies I had the tightest relationship with that could help. And then it had a like a ranking for relationship strength. And then like, you know, it was like a little personal CRM. So like what was the latest touch point, you know, or or, whatever. And then I had the three decks. And the three decks were like the selling points for Sales Hacker. Like why Sales Hacker? And at each deck was generic for each one of those categories. So like here's how we can help your research advisory firm. Here's how we can help your consulting and training program. Here's how we can help your SaaS company. And, you know, they were somewhat generic just with the ability to be tweaked so that I can get one out quickly. Wasn't that I was going to send out generic deck. Just wanted to be able to tweak something and get it out. So I had my eyes on a, a couple of things. We've had conversations with LinkedIn and HubSpot and a few other companies, but um, nothing really materialized. And I was an early investor in Outreach, and I went to the Outreach conference uh, two years ago. And it wasn't with any intention to like sell my company per se, but it was definitely uh, you know a conversation that I would have if the if the topic came up. And it did. I sat down with Manny. He had just raised a $65 million Series D. And I said, hey, congrats on the round of funding. What keeps you up at night? And he said, marketing. I said, well, you know, we've got a media company for B2B salespeople. We know a little bit about getting in touch with them. They know what they want, obviously. And you've got best-in-class sales software. Like, Why don't we do this thing? He's like, well, I, you know, I didn't think I could afford you. And I was like, you just raised a half a billion dollar valuation. I'll take stock. Let's go. Let's do this thing. So that got the conversation started, and I sent over the deck and had conversations with Manny and their whole C-suite that next week. And we came to terms pretty quickly. I mean, I think it would, like the outline of the deal was done in two, three weeks, and then uh, you know, legal dragged it out, and made it you know a three-month thing. But it, it was a good match, and you know, like you know, I again, I was an early investor in them, so I was super high on the business, and and did a you know eighty percent stock, twenty percent cash deal. So you know, I've got the upside that I wanted. I gave up a cash flow business for upside. Mm-hmm. 
you go from you know I'll give you loose figures, but you go from like making a million dollars a year to making you know a couple hundred thousand, but you go from like your upside being you know low millions to you know eight figures. It's a decision that you need to make, and honestly, for me, it was like okay, I had done the the cash flow thing for a little while, and now I was ready to take a, a big swing and a big chance, and it's uh, it's going to pay off. And so what was that transition like now as a community that was acquired? Um, you know, I know we, we've navigated it with CMX and Bevy. How do we keep things authentic? How do we make sure CMX remains objective, continue to make the community and the industry our number one priority? I know it's, it's a, a bit different um, for you and how you see kind of sales hacker fitting in with outreach. So how, how was that transition and, and how do the two brands interact today? They don't interact much today. Uh, we still are fulfilling our mission with Sales Hacker, which is we want to create the living, breathing sales encyclopedia. There's not a ton of education on sales in K-12 or even college programs. There's starting to be more college programs for it. But you know what happens when you leave? By the time anything hits a textbook, it's, it's usually dated. And so we wanted to create this, you know, like, what if you can hear from current practitioners, you know, what they're doing right now? And that resonated. And we're going to keep doing that. And the like with Sales Hacker, a rising tide lifts all boats. So like for any of the other players in this space or vendors or consultants or software companies, you name it, if we're talking about, you know, modernizing or futurizing sales, it's going to be good for everybody in the space Mm -hmm. whether that's good for outreach or you know anybody any of our competitors or whatnot it doesn't really matter because it's creating a much larger tam we say the same thing with cmx as well we're trying to grow the community industry grow the community market uh if we're successful everyone's going to be more successful that's working in this space yeah and for for outreach specifically like you know we use sales hacker as a way to Put our customers front and center. We we use it as a way to to provide value to some prospects mm-hmm. that we're in cycle with. Same. We use some intent, you know, signals from it, like what people are interested in. We totally. um, have a completely hard wall between outreach and sales hacker, so it's a different uh, CRM, different marketing automation. The only way that you would be able to get a lead from sales hacker um, over to outreach is if you like went through me literally to like, Mm -hmm. which I would never do because that would make sense. So we, we say we'll never do anything to negatively affect the reader, listener, viewer, subscriber experience. And we'll never do anything for outreach that we wouldn't do for another sponsor. You know, if somebody signs up to be a subscriber for sales hacker, outreach isn't getting that lead. It's not like, you know, their outreach is also contacting them. Not there's no possible way for that to happen unless like I go in and pull it out for somebody. But, you know, if, if somebody signs up for a webinar and that webinar happens to be sponsored by outreach, just like we would do it for any other vendor, then those leads go to that sponsor. Then mm-hmm. and it's all compliant, GDPR, it's you, you know, you're completely notified and you can opt out, but um, we do it that same way. So, you know, will we Will we trend more outreach in the future? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, there'll probably be a point where we do like presented by, um, you know, sales hacker, presented by, powered by outreach or something like that. Or we, 
skin it to have some kind of like you know same color scheme or something or you know uh one of the things where we just launched our new community platform and we have channels on there one of the first new channels after the original launch um, we'll probably do an outreach channel prospects and customers who want to talk about outreach can go in there and we'll have like people from our company like support and whatnot go in there and be able to answer questions and, and link people to stuff and that's separate from our our customer community because it'll be a feeder for our customer community but like customer advisory boards betas things like that will all happen in our main community that is for like right. our users and this will be for everybody else this will be like the top of the funnel to that and then we'll let that happen for you know all of our other partners anybody else you know it's not just going to be an outreach thing and you're, you know we'll let you know other programs make channels so um, again like we're not really doing anything specific for just outreach um, and we don't want this to feel like that the outreach is getting plenty of value in, in other ways and by the way sales hacker is still profitable so the you know the company's not really it's not really costing the company anything actually it's it's giving the company more money to spend on marketing because everything right. that sales hacker makes we're able to put back into our marketing budget sounds like you have a good setup yeah we, we've navigated that too and you know only recently added like a powered by bevy to the logo um align the designs a little bit better but we still same kind of ideas maintain independent brands with cmx really focused on the industry and the practitioners in the industry and, and supporting them and their needs and we still work with all partners in the same way still have all the same kind of opportunities yeah the only partners we've lost are our direct competitors and honestly not all of them have self-selected out and we would still work with them we never said we won't they self-selected out and we don't blame them but yeah you know they did but not all of them they're they're a handful of competitors that still pay sales hacker to to promote so now you're part of outreach and I, you you have a pretty interesting perspective and understanding on community and sales both because you helped start CMX you've built a massive community and you're a salesperson so I wanted to kind of get your take on how community and sales teams can work together or or kind of how your thoughts on the value of community to business has developed well community is part of the experience of being a customer and and having a, a thriving community is a moat in a lot of ways for a company um, because people want to stay to be part of a community. Like if platforms are the same, but one has a community and one doesn't, and you're like in that community and you're, that community is thriving, then you're going to want to be part of that one. If you are looking at changing providers, but the one you're leaving has a really strong community and you don't want to leave that, that's going to factor and, and weigh in on your decision pretty heavily. You know, if and and you know, often I find that like communities are where people learn things. So, you know, for me, I remember going snowboarding a couple of years ago, and like I grew up in New York, we never went snowboarding. So I was learning, you know, how to snowboard, and you know, my friends were teaching me. And while I'm learning how to snowboard, like if I had wanted to go buy gear, or like when I wanted to rent gear, I would ask them if you know, like what I should get, because they're the people teaching me. So it's kind of one of those things where like the the person who teaches you how to do something is the first person you're going to ask what you should buy. Hmm. You know, right? So like if if you wanted to go fishing and somebody taught you how to fish, you would ask them, or what rod should I get? Same thing with tennis, anything you do. If you are able to educate folks, whether it being through a community or, you know, through your publication or whatnot, 
people are going to naturally come to you when it's time to to buy, and they're gonna they're gonna look to you as a you know informed consultant versus a salesperson. So I think that sales can work with your community in, in a lot of different ways, and and they should be you know listening to what people are talking about. So like your community is a great way to understand like what your potential buyer cares about. It's a great way to provide value for prospects before they come become buyers. It's a great way to connect them with current customers who are very happy so that they do the selling for you. There's plenty of other things. I think like one of the things that we use right now, we use um, Salesforce communities as our main community platform. You know, we're able to tie our our and this is outreach, not sales hacker, but we're able to tie our our outreach power user community to Salesforce, to Zendesk, so that we know exactly like what's going on in that account, you know, also to outreach. So we know what are the upsell opportunities, what are the hangups, if any, oh, this customer is in here and they're very happy except they just have this one feature request. And we, you know, need to let them know when we have that feature available. And in the meantime, like we need to keep an eye on, okay, like our other players in the space building that feature. How big of a deal is this feature? Is this feature going to cause somebody to churn? And how are the sales reps working with the community managers and support folks to, you know, keep those com- customers happy um, and understand, you know, every every detail of that account so that they can continue to expand that account. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's quite a few things. Awesome. Well, so looking forward, what what are you planning for your community, for the sales hacker community, and, and for outreach? Uh, yeah, so we just rolled out the new iteration of the sales hacker community. So for a long time, um, once we realized that the LinkedIn uh, group was damaged and wasn't going to be fixed anytime soon, we figured out that we needed to, to build something else. So we went on this, this trek uh, for sales hacker over the past few years where we had this thriving LinkedIn group and then LinkedIn rebuilt their platform for scale. And in doing that, had to strip out functionality from other areas of their business and deprioritize other areas of their business. And one of those areas was groups. And we later found out that they want the conversations to happen on the newsfeed, which is why mm-hmm. they deprioritize groups. But we had 13,000 people in this group and now we had no moderator functionality, which is like, okay, we're, we're screwed. There's no point in having a group on here if we can't moderate it. That's, just, yeah. that's not a group. I still don't understand why they stripped those features. It just—it's absurd to me. When you're when you're building a community, you you have to think about a couple things. Like you've got functionality versus network effect. So if you build it on Slack or LinkedIn or Facebook, you get network effect. But most mm-hmm. of the time, you don't get functionality. If you build mm-hmm. it on um, you know some of these other platforms, sometimes you don't get you know, platforms that are meant for community. You get great functionality: moderator to this, that, and the other thing, sub channels connects to all these different things, but you don't get the network effect. You know, we we dug in, we looked at all the different platforms we could potentially build this on. The third thing that you think about is ownership. If you build it on a different platform, you don't own it. You don't own the experience, you don't own the data. Exactly. You don't own the relationship. What happens if the company you build it on goes out of business? Or they, you know, yeah. sell to a big company and that company's a competitor or something else. I don't know. Or they deprioritize, you know, giving you that influence. Exactly. Well, it deprioritizes functionality. It deprioritizes anything. Right. Exactly. It's out of your control. Yeah, exactly. So we did. We set out on an eight-month journey um, to build what you see today on Sales Hacker, which is our, you know, our, our product that we built from scratch. 
I'd say it was about eight months. Um, the first three months of it were just like asking questions, looking at what was out there and just looking through like what were all our possibilities. Once we realized we had to build ourselves, you know, what did, what were the, the basic features and functionality that people like actually needed? And, uh, and then the last like six months or, you know, five months or so were the build. And we had a really good, uh, like Colin, our, our head of sales hacker, um, our GM, did a really good job on the phased rollout. So we had a Slack group for about 110 sales hacker, what we called founding members. Mm-hmm. And those people were able to come in and give us uh, feature requests, but also like look at the mocks, look at the staging site. Then they were able to get into the staging site early, a week before, and start seeding content, seeding questions. Mm-hmm. And then when we released the site to the public, it already had seeded threads and comments. So now we've got close to 4,000 active members already, and it's only been you know two or three weeks. 4,000 active members. Exactly. That's awesome. Is that monthly active members? I mean, we've only been a- alive for... Three weeks on this now, so it's three weekly active members. <laughs> you you built it on what was it, BuddyPress on WordPress? Yep, and the total comments we have is thirteen hundred and forty-five. Total posts is one hundred and fifty-two. How are you thinking about with the idea that like you don't have the network effects of a large social network? How are you going to keep people coming back and engaging on there? Especially, which I, I find the challenge for a lot of companies today is that like. People are spending so much time on social media platforms to the extent that, you know, where forums used to be really successful on the Internet um, and and attention was kind of distributed throughout different spaces on the Internet. Today, so much of our attention is centralized on just a few platforms. We get 250,000 visitors a month. So, like, we do have some sort of a network effect where, like, people come right. back for content. And then a couple things we're rolling out right now is we're going to have – some influencers in our space be kind of channel hosts. Um, so like super moderators for the channels. And then, uh, so like, you know, we have the, the sales development channel or the sales operation channel inside of sales hacker. That's where like how it houses those conversations. So we'll have somebody do those. Um, we're also going to let people bring their communities into sales hacker. So if there's like a, if there's a community somewhere else, that's really good but they don't have a great platform for it. They can host it on Sales Hacker. And actually Sales Hacker will help it grow because there's more people in, you know, more subscribers for Sales Hacker than there are for their community. But mm-hmm. they'll also bring in a whole other set of, you know, folks. What's an example of that? Like who would want to bring their community to your space? So, an interesting one in our space, there's a company um, called Sales Impact Academy out of the UK. And they've got a 2500 person community of all mostly UK and EMEA you know, contacts. So that's great because like we don't have a huge audience out there. We maybe have like 10,000 people. Um, so if they want to build their community, they could do it on sales hacker and do it through a sales hacker channel. We'll promote it, you know, as a channel, people will see it and they'll get a free platform to build it on. Yeah. That's cool. That's really smart. Making yourself a platform for other communities. And then we're going to get a bunch of subscribers who are UK subscribers, mm-hmm. and subscribers. So like, yeah. I want that for every industry. Like, cause, cause our goal is well, right now we're like tech as an ICP, as like a, um, as a, a persona, 
tech hyper growth companies in the United States is like mm-hmm. 80% of our list. The other 20%, which is still a meaningful amount of folks, you know, is outside of ICP, ideal customer profile is what we call that, is outside of that. So maybe they're in manufacturing in the US or maybe they're in, you know, tech, but they're in Dublin. So we want to get outside of ICP more. Like, how do we get more people from? I want, you know, you go past a construction site and you see those big yellow cranes with Caterpillar written down the side. I want the guy who runs sales ops for Caterpillar to jump in. Like, how do you get those people? Because I've seen them at conferences before. Like, that person <laughs> is, has been at the head of sales ops for Shell Oil I met at a Gartner conference. So, like, right. why isn't that person in the sales hacker community? So, how do you go way far out of your current ICP to get right. these people involved in your community? Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's been a theme, something you've been able to do successfully throughout your career is identify partnerships that give you access to new communities and audiences that you wouldn't have had otherwise. You did that with, with Saster, um, you did that with Outreach, um, and, and now you're doing that with creating your own platform for other communities to bring onto your space. Yeah, you know, it's just about seeing opportunity and mm-hmm. chasing after it and also like understanding the angles like what's in it you know this is where it helps to be a salesperson at heart is like what's in it for them like how do i frame this so that there's you know so that they see this as a win for them well i think we should all channel that right like that's that's what good sales is about when people think sales they they can think you know the sleazy cold sell the cold email the used car salesman persona but as you know and and i've learned like good sales, especially at the level that it's being done today, um, is actually extremely thoughtful. Like one of the challenges we hear from companies is like, we don't want to let our salespeople into our community because we're afraid they're they're going to be too salesy. And I'm like, I actually don't, we don't really have that problem with, you know, CMX and Bevy, for example. Like I want them to be in there because they're some of the most thoughtful, educated, helpful people in the community. And, and they, they know what it feels like to like, have a cold, awkward sale, and that's not what they want either. So it really is leading with intention of how do we help people? What what's in it for them? What's the value to them? And every community builder should honestly be thinking that too. When you're trying to grow a community and you're trying to build something that people want to be a part of, you know, it, it's the same question. It's you know, what's the angle for them? What's the thing that's going to make it really compelling to them that helps them achieve their goal and makes them want to participate in your community? Totally. I think sales is incredibly thoughtful. It's also incredibly nuanced. Um, it's about understanding the angles, about understanding the other individual. I mean, no two deals are the same. Um, there's always there's there's always something else about something different about somebody's business. I, I try not to use too many sports analogies because I know that not everybody <sighs> gets it. But like I grew up playing hockey, so it resonates very much with me. But hockey was a huge part of my life. It was like the only thing I cared about really for. 18 years growing up uh until i you know finished high school it was i, I played you know five hours uh um a day sometimes um in like tournaments and whatnot and you know what was ingrained in me was like the 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 games are won and the battles of, um, along the boards it's like all the little things that you just like never think are are part of what matters but add up to be the only thing that matters so like what are you doing in those what are what are the nuances of the deal? What are the little things that you're doing along the way that are going to add up? Like you can have the best product and have a a pre-existing relationship somewhere and you can have you could have been there first. I mean, those are like pretty big things. 
But if you don't do all like the little things along the way in sales, like if you're not thoughtful, if you're not multi-threaded, if you're not, you know, doing a good job differentiating, if you're not, you know, providing value, you might still lose that deal. Like it, all those little things add up. And, and really, you know, you're not watching your, your flank. You're not watching like you, you think you have it in the bag and so you actually don't end up doing those little things. So I think like community is one of those areas where like it, it actually helps you you do those a lot of those little things in the sales process. Like it helps you be able to deliver value, connect people with other people, connect people to things that they find valuable, you know, surface information, you know, what have you, but also make them feel a part of something. I think like in this day and age with tech, uh, it's only a matter of time before a lot of this stuff is commoditized and like the, the key differentiator is the experience. Totally. Exactly. Low code, no code movement. Anyone can build a product. If you make people feel like they're a part of something, that's 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 the moat, right? That's the thing that another company can't copy. Yeah, exactly. One more question before we go into a few rapid fire questions to wrap up. Um, just because you've had so much experience with the virtual events, um, what what tips do you have for companies that are getting into virtual events for the first time now to make them successful? Yeah, I mean, the beautiful thing about, well, I should say the silver lining of the whole coronavirus thing is that I think it pulled technology up like five or 10 years. So when we were doing in-person events, we were about to do a 3,000 person in-person in conference, live conference, physical conference. We weren't going to have a virtual element at all. And then we had to cancel that because coronavirus really started to flare up and our event was scheduled for April 7th to the 9th. We had to pivot to a completely virtual event. So we ran this completely virtual event. We had 13,000, I think over 14,000 people subscribed once it's all said and done and, and you count the on-demand stuff. And now we look at it and we're like, wow, in the future, there needs to be a hybrid. Like we, we have to do some kind of hybrid. Like We mm -hmm. still have to do the in-person event. Like I don't mm -hmm. think we'll abandon the virtual aspect of it. We used to think that like, oh, but if you do a virtual thing, then like, not as many people will come because they'll be like, oh, I could just watch it all online. It's like, okay, well, maybe you don't watch it all online. Maybe you don't give it all away. Maybe you still do like a Slack channel for everybody online, but like, you know, the, the people in person are still going to get like supreme net networking time. So one of the, the things I think we did really well was we did a Slack channel that opened two weeks before the event, the week of the event, and then two weeks after the event for all the attendees to kind of interact on. And, uh, you'd actually think that there would be like more bad actors than there were. There weren't a lot. So I thought that went really well. People interacted. We had like an outreach command center on there so we can like send people to different channels from outreach. We had uh, AEs working, uh, our account executives working in shifts. So salespeople were on, support people were on at all times. So I thought that was uh, pretty well done, well executed. And we had about 10% of our signup base get log into the Slack and, and create a username, which Ended up being like you know almost fifteen hundred uh, people, mm -hmm. which was pretty good, pretty pretty solid. We also made sure we had really high quality speakers. So we had the head of sales for Amazon Web Services, which is the fastest growing and largest SaaS company in the world. And we had the ex CMO and the ex CRO from Tableau, who took them from zero to one point two billion in ARR. So you don't get much bigger than those two in the sales space. Like not a lot of people know what one what a billion in ARR looks like. Nonetheless having gone from zero to it. Not a lot of people know what, you know, fifty billion in ARR looks like. You know, like that's 
that's pretty wild. The Amazon Web Service is the largest and fastest growing. So it's really just about making sure you nail the like super high quality speakers that, and it's not like the speakers who are like always on the circuit that everybody can see everywhere else, because right. that's what happens with live events. But at least like less people see those. So it's like when you're a person who's like a serial speaker, virtual events is actually like not as good for you because at least the live ones you got a different audience, roughly different audience every time. But the uh, virtual ones, I mean, once somebody's seen you, you know, two times, right? It's the same spiel. Exactly. Right. So you really think that like the highest point of leverage for having your events be successful is just kind of shooting as high as possible for the the quality of speaker you can get. Yeah. Cool. Any anything specifically in like the experience for attendees that has stood out to you? Well, the. I think the Slack channel was part of that experience. I think outside of that, you know, not really. Again, like, I mean, you guys keep it pretty simple, I guess. You you're kind of keeping it more your standard webinar format. I mean, right? the tech stuff was is is pretty commoditized. I mean, you could do you know chats. You could do, we, we did. I think like another thing we did that was really good was we did four AMA sessions, and we used Slido with. Zoom mm-hmm. and we let people ask the questions on Slido and then yeah Slido is a great tool yeah then the moderator would just we ask questions to the group and it's really about making sure you bring people on that have chemistry together also so a prep call is really important and you know a prep doc but also like could you find people who've done this before together like I, my, I got to pick my panel and I did one with like sales leadership and I picked three of three people who have been friends of mine in tech that have all spoken on panels together and like have kind of worked together. And our panel was like, you could tell that there was instant chemistry across all of it. Like people mm-hmm. didn't cut each other off. People had differing opinions, but different like spins on things. And it was really, it was kind of good banter also. So it was fun. We had another, another session that, uh, that we picked, um, that we put Scott Barker on, who's uh, you know runs partnerships for Sales Hacker, and those people had all spoken before on panels and knew each other well. So when it came time to do their session, you know it is, it's just pithy, like banter. It's a it's, it's quick, it's fast paced. It's that's what you want, and and it's not, and they don't all agree. I know it's so boring when a panel is just all people who just agree with each other. Or there's no chemistry. You don't get a new perspective. Yeah, there's no chemistry or it's just like people who are – I mean there's some people who are really good at PowerPoint presentations and some people who are really good at panels. Like how you got to think on your feet. You got to be witty for a, a panel and then like a presentation is – I mean you could be a lot drier. It matters what the moderator is like too, right? Like if they structure it as like I'm going to I'm gonna ask you know, each of you a question one off at a time – or they just like throw a general question out and have every person have to answer it. Um, there, there's an art to that panel facilitation as well that encourages the panelists to be have more of that banter format and have the space to be witty and be more conversational and disagree. The moderator does the, mm, okay, cool. And then it goes right into the next question. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that shit. What are you doing? Like, oh, ph- phenomenal point. Actually, you know, that brings me to my next question or like, Oh, that's it's so interesting that you bring up X, Y, and Z because it's what do you mean? Like, I, I, whenever I hear that on like podcast or a panel, I'm just like, man, moderators like on on airplane mode. I mean, it seems like they're not listening, and they just they just kind of they're already thinking about the next question. 
they're on snooze. You know, they're not really engaged in the conversation, so they're not mm-hmm. facilitating. And I mean, that's it's shameful for the moderator, but you see it sometimes. Well, on that note, totally cool. Um, so here's my next question. <laughs> well, we're gonna wrap up with just some rapid fire questions. You ready for the rapid fire? Yeah. All right. Favorite book. Oh, can I can I say my own? Oh, what's about shameless self promotions here? It's a little egocentric. Your favorite book that's not of course you have to love your own book, but Greatest Salesman in the World by Og Mandino was something I carried around with me early in my career in my backpack. And it was just it's it's life lessons. Um, but they all apply to sales also. So big fan of that. Big fan of uh, Forty Eight awesome. Laws of Power also. Which one? Forty eight Laws of Power. Mm. All right, next question. Uh, who's a role model that you really look up to right now? Scott Barker, who works for me in, in a partnerships capacity, has been with me for two years, has been putting out really good content on something he calls The Forecast, which is his his newsletter. And, uh, and another guy that I actually mentored early on in his career, Morgan Ingram, puts out some really good stuff too. And then Beck Holland, who I've never – formerly worked with or mentored, but is, uh, has been a friend for a while. She puts out some great stuff. So if you're interested in, you know, life lessons, um, that, uh, you know, late 20 year old, early 30 year old is learning, uh, Scott does some great work. Um, Beck and Morgan are more on the sales side. Uh, one thing I signed up for recently is the Stratechery. I think it's Ben Thompson and Mm -hmm. it's all around kind of just economics and, and, strategy stuff that i find really interesting love it sounds good uh what's one like one of your favorite apps or tools that maybe is is somewhat underrated or or people aren't really aware of command e something i've been using a lot lately it's just to to find things across my computer especially Mm. in sales it's it, it works very quickly um so i like that a lot and then uh loom is another one. Oh yeah, Loom's becoming more popular every day. That's an awesome app. Trying to get the team to adopt uh, adopt there. I'm really excited about that one. Right, Loom is to like record videos to send to people. Awesome. If your uh, house was on fire, you had to grab three things. What would they be? Oof. My wife, my kid, and my dogs. <laughs> Those are things, Max. <laughs> Yeah, what about objects? I'm not a big things person. Um, I don't have... So you just let it all burn? Yeah, honestly, I mean, I just get the insurance money. I mean, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want... You know, just like, I wouldn't want to let my passport, wallet, uh, those two things burn because they're just biggest pain in the asses to replace. The things you that, don't have like a journal, diary or anything? No, I mean, everything's on the cloud and, uh, you know, for the most part, you know, we're not big sentimental people. I'm trying to think like what about that picture of me that you keep on your fridge? We move around so much like we're we're we were just in Arizona for two and a half months now we're in the Hamptons for two and a half months then we go to Seattle for a month then we go to Austin like we never sat still so we don't I don't know I don't know how you do it. We didn't get into your nomadic style which has calmed since you've had a kid but yeah I mean passport trying to think like what else I mean like you know ba- things we can't replace very easily like you know her birth certificate things like that yeah there's nothing else what are you what's your answer like what do people say to that journals what is it I would say oh we have we have journals I have like a card from my grandma I'd probably grab that it's a problem everything's on the cloud these days <laughs> not everything <laughs> I have a few things mostly yeah mostly things like that just things that are written down a couple items that were like gifts from people that you know, aren't replaceable. As long as I have 
my wife, my kid, and my dogs. That's what's important. Yeah. Uh, my wife, my cat. Well, my wife has to carry the kid because it's still in her belly. So There you go. Okay, last question. Um, you are reaching the end of your life. Um, you're on your deathbed, and you're asked to write down a, a Twitter-sized message uh, that you want to pass on about what you've learned. Um, could be about sales, could be about community, could be about life. Um, what what would you write down? What would you want people to know? I mean, my, I, I, you know, this is super deep question. So shit, I don't know. But my mantra for a lot of career advice and, and younger folks has been your 20s are for learning and your 30s are for earning. And I think a lot of people are very impatient when they get out of college and they're in their twenties and they want to, you know, immediately be making millions and, and whatever else. And I was guilty of not being as, a, as patient as I could have been, but putting in the time and working for the right people and learning in your twenties opens up the rest of your life in a way that like not many other things can. And hmm. you just want to f- make sure you're on the right mountain. Like you, you're climbing the right mountain. Cause like, you just like imagine like a set of hills and they're like, there are some mountains and that are smaller, some mountains that are bigger, blah, blah, blah. And you could feel like you're climbing up the mountain, but if you're on like one of the small mountains, then you got to actually like go back down in order to go back up the larger mountain. Mm-hmm. So like, what if you just started climbing the right mountain from the beginning? So like, why don't you spend more time figuring out what the right mountain is going to be and like absorbing that, soaking that up. And then when you're ready, you can, you, you know, you'll know, okay, I'm climbing the right mountain. I'm climbing the big one. And I think a lot of people, they just start climbing. You know, they don't really take the time to figure that out. I, I always would say like, oh, man, I hear this from people all the time like, oh, I, I, I'm I looking for new jobs right now and I can go make 10K more a year on my OTE working for this company. Or I can make 10K less working for that company, but the company that gets that pays 10K less has like this boss I really love and like the CEO is a four-time founder and he's very successful and all this other stuff and like the other one doesn't have any of that. So it's like to me as a 30-something-year-old now, I'm like, oh, it's a no-brainer. Go take 10K less. First of all, Mm -hmm. it's OTE. So like you don't even know how many people are hitting on on target earnings. How many people are hitting Mm -hmm. the variable? Like how many people are are getting their full commission, first of all? Second Mm -hmm. of all, like 10K, losing 10K is cheap to pay for like a really good boss who's going to teach you so much. You know, a CEO has been there, done that, and like, you know, upside and all the other things that come with that. So, like, I think after basic income levels, you should pick the, the learnings over the earnings in your earlier career. Okay. I mean, if we're talking about the difference between making 25K and 60K, then, like, okay, you get a different, different problem. For sure. But I'm going to make 120 or 110. Uh, you know, I think you need to make the decision based on what you're going to learn. Awesome. Love that advice. Great way to end it. Um, anywhere that people can go to follow you, uh, where can they find you online? Well, now I get to plug the books. Yeah, I mean, Hacking Sales and Sales Engagement, two different books, um, the books I wrote on sales. Career Hacking for Millennials, not just for Millennials, but uh, is the, the book I wrote on kind of career hacking and my learnings throughout my career. And then Outreach is obviously our, uh, you know, leading sales engagement platform sales hacker is our you know online publication media company and then i'm on linkedin so find me there if you want to get in touch
Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate you joining the podcast. Appreciate your friendship and support over the years. Like I said in the beginning, you're someone I've continuously learned a ton from and take inspiration from. And whenever I have a practical decision to make, I ask myself, what would Max do? (laughs) That's not a lie. I actually think that. So just grateful for you and all the work you've done. And I think um, you're one of the few people that really does understand both community and business uh, and sales in, in a really deep level, uh, in a deep way. So I'm grateful for you sharing your, your wisdom and taking the time. Appreciate that, man. Virtu- virtual hugs. Virtual hugs. Virtual hugs.